Well, uh, you and I normally wait till January 1st and we commit to some list that doesn't last very long, right? Our New Year's resolutions. I just want to let you know you have 194 and a half days, roughly, uh, before you can commit to something. But instead of waiting until 2010, uh, perhaps you can be inspired by the words of Jonathan Edwards. These are his resolutions. Listen to how he began them. And he did this as a college student. And he did this not on January 1st, but he made revisions throughout the year. He said, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable with his will for Christ's sake. And then he adds a reminder to himself. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Resolved that I will do whatever I think to be the most to the glory of God and to, good, to the, my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and for the most good and advantage of mankind in general, resolved so to do whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever, resolved to be continually endeavoring to find out some new contrivance and invention to promote the forementioned things. And he ends his resolutions with, on August 11th, always to do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it, and let there be something, number 70, of benevolence in all that I speak. August 17th, 17. 23. You and I could say that Jonathan Edwards was a resolved Christian. He had settled in his mind from an early age, from his collegiate years, what he was going to do with the rest of his life. And it just happened one afternoon. He didn't wait till the New Year's Day to do that. And so we need to understand as believers in Jesus that we need to be resolved like Jonathan Edwards. Not exactly like him, but in the same manner. The question I want to ask today is, what are we resolved to do every single day, no matter what? What consumes our minds? Is it our families, our friends, our job, our church, our class load, our future? What if I were to tell you that really only one thing is important? Remember Martha talking to Jesus She says to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me then, Martha, like Peter, telling Jesus what to do. And Jesus, with compassion, responds to her. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things. But only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. She chose the good portion. What was she, she was sitting at Jesus' feet as, she taught, as He taught her. 
So my question to us today is, what is our number one priority in life? And can we say, could others say of us, that we are resolved? Turn with me to Philippians 3, 1-11. And you're going to see today two things. A short sentence on the dual blessing of biblical repetition. And then we're going to take a financial look at our spiritual life. And we're going to see what are some worthless investments. And in the words of Jonathan Edwards, what are some priceless investments. Endeavors. One commentator said Philippians 3, 1 through 11 is the foundational building block of theology and it's a true classic of Christian spirituality. And so some of you may be asking, why preach such a heavy theological sermon? Because the text requires it. Because it's right there. And there's a danger in our culture of being shallow and, and crowd appealing versus being deep and Christ-exalting. You may be thinking, it's Father's Day. (laughs) Why are you teaching this text on Father's Day? Well, two very simple reasons. Number one, it's the next paragraph in Philippians, so I didn't have to dream up some Father's Day sermon. And I assure you, this daddy and every father here needs to hear this. And so we'll begin in 3.1, first looking at The dual blessing of biblical repetition. Paul says, finally, not that he's concluding his letter, but he's concluding this section. Chapter 3 is the end of the section that began in 127 when he said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That is, let your citizenship be worthy. And we saw in chapter 2 that there were humble citizens, obedient citizens, and model citizens that we saw in Timothy, Paul, and Epaphroditus last week. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's that term again, over and over and over again. Find your joy in Jesus. Don't find your joy in your success in work. Don't find your joy in your success in any other thing than in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. So the dual blessing is, is number one, for Paul, it's, it's simple. It's reviewing. That's why each week we at least show you the main theme of, of Philippians and the outline. So by the end of the 12 weeks, it, it might be there. It's simple for me to just cut and paste the PowerPoints and send them on. And Paul's saying, look, you've heard these things. And I think he's re- remembering back to Acts 16 when the church first started that he'd gone over these things before, what he's getting ready to tell them. And it's safe for you. That it's safe for us to hear over and over and over again the good news of Jesus Christ. It's safe for us to hear that. There's a hymn called Tell Me the Story of Jesus that the author of that wanted to hear every word of the truth of the Gospel again and again. And then in 2-11, through 11, he begins the main paragraph. And so he's going to repeat what he's already told them because it, for him it's, it's simple. It's something he can just do. And for them it's safe. They need to hear it again. The main, par- the main point of this entire paragraph is this. Worldly, fleshly investments are worthless. Pursuing, valuing, and investing in your relationship with Jesus Christ, is priceless. 
It's priceless. If you were to watch the stock market like I did this week, not that I do it weekly, but it was in the Vail Mountaineer. It's right down there in the bottom every day. Green is good. Red is bad, right? Monday, minus 187.13. Tuesday, minus 107.46. Wednesday, minus 7.49. Thursday, plus 58.42. Friday, minus 15.87. Total change for the week? Minus 259.3. But if you followed it all month, it's up from where it was a month ago. And there are millions of people in our country today whose joy ebbs and flows with the stock market. And Paul here tells us worthless or worldly fleshly investments are worthless. In fact, he's going to speak with such severe language, you may think he's not acting like a Christ-like example. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Dogs were, what he's talking about are the filthy dogs that would scavenge around the garbage. He said, look out for the evil doers, literally evil workers, those who emphasize good works to earn favor with God. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul compares the Judaizers, those are people who had a quest to earn favor with God by good works. He said, I compare you to pagan priests of 1 Kings 18 who would slash their wrists and try to bleed so that Baal would come down and take care of the altar. He said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. His language One commentator says, Paul uses extraordinarily aggressive and offensive language to describe those who put confidence in their own human effort and in the flesh to earn favor with God. Was Paul out of line here? Is Paul not acting like a Christian? Let me just read a few of the red letter words. You whitewashed tombs. You brood of vipers. To some unbelievers, he said, an evil and adulterous generation. To believers, he said, you faithless generation. The biting language of Jesus, the stunning severity, as one pastor has said, did not mark his entire ministry, but he chose words strategically at right times so that he could grab the attention. And that's what Paul's doing here. He says, listen, brothers and sisters, saints, citizens, look out for these people because they're out there and they're going to tell you the way to God is through good works. But Paul says in verse 3, no, we have the true relationship with God for we are the circumcision. And what he would say in Romans 2 is that's the circumcision of the heart. It's not a physical circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so Paul uses that term flesh four times in those two verses, three verses, to show us that the worldly mindset is, is, is concentrating and putting confidence in our flesh. 
And there are millions of people in America, there are some in this valley, who think human effort is how you get right with God. Does our, our Christian life require human effort? Amen. We will get there in a few minutes. But to be right with God, to pursue religion as these Judaizers were doing, they were saying that you need to follow the law, become circumcised, and therefore, ergo, you'd be right with God and you're a true Christian. To which Paul says, hogwash. He says it even more severe in another verse. Our human effort to earn favor with God is the very opposite of gospel thinking. Religion says, and this is from Tim Keller, if I obey, then God will love me. The gospel says, because God's loved me, I can obey. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4.9 Religion says, I must do X, Y, and Z, then God will love me, God will bless me, God will do this. That's what religion says. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, God owes me. Paul said, no. No. You shouldn't put any confidence in the flesh. And if if anyone were going to put confidence in the flesh, I can do. Look what he says in verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He was ritually right. He got circumcised physically on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. Not only was he ritually right, but he was not a proselyte. He was of the nation of Israel. He was not just some wanderer who saw the temple, came in and wanted to be a God-fearer and follow God in that religion and then get circumcised. He was not only ritually right, he was of the people of Israel. He was of the right nation. And not just the right nation, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was of the right group of people within that. He was not just a Jew, he was a kingly Jew. And as I, the PowerPoint shows, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That if the first three show his pedigree, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, the last three show his performance, that he has been the Jew of all Jews. If you're going to boast in the confidence, he's saying if you're boasting in the flesh, nobody has anything on me. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. He knew the law Genesis through Deuteronomy. He probably had Psalms memorized. He knew it better than anyone. As to the zeal, a persecutor of the church. You can read about that in Acts 9. He not only knew the law, but he lived it out. We want everybody, what would Paul say, is to be a God-fearer of the nation of Israel. And as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Not that he was perfect, but he made all the right sacrifices. And so he knew the law. He lived out the law to the finest detail. You could say Paul was like Martin Luther. Those of you that have read about Martin Luther and his history, he used to annoy people and other monks with his confession. For hours, he would sit in the confessional and just confess and confess 
and confess. And you could just see the other guy on the other side going, Martin, it's okay. So Paul, like Martin Luther of the early church, used to just get people upset because of all his, I've got to confess, I've got to do this, I've got to be blameless. But like Martin Luther, Paul was knocked off his horse, Martin Luther, it was in a thunderstorm, finally figured out, it's not about my religious works. It never will be about your religious works. The practical application to us is that if we believe we are attending on Sundays and we're involved in studies and we're banking on those actions to get us into heaven, we are making worthless investments. Do those things matter? Absolutely. Do I want to see everybody at church on Sunday? You betcha. Do I want to see people involved in studies? Amen. Why are we doing that? Do you want to know one reason why there are people who even this Sunday wouldn't come to church, who have been in church and who have left church? is because churches across this country have failed to teach a gospel mentality. Praise God in our children's ministry, the bottom foundation is the gospel. Because when we fail to teach this to our kids, what happens is they grow up in a do this Don't do that. And if there's no gospel foundation, they get this mentality that God owes me when I do right and He's going to to punish me when I do wrong. And we leave out the gospel and the nature of God and who God is, the fatherhood of God, and we create in people a debtor's ethic that is embraced and they leave the church because they think, because their thinking is very prosperity gospel. I did this, I did this, I did this. I didn't watch a rated R movie. And um, I didn't drink, nor smoke, nor chew, nor go with girls who do. Yet, yet, my father died. Uh, I've got something on my skin. Um, I didn't get into this college. I'm done. I'm out. I don't want to go to church anymore. If that's what church is... I don't want to go to church anymore. So we've got to be careful that we create in people, now we don't create it, that we communicate to people, pray that God creates in their hearts a deep understanding of the Gospel. We don't want self-righteous or irreligious people to think the Gospel is a bargain with God. That's a misunderstanding of grace. So Paul says, if you want to know somebody that has all the religious accolades, it's me. Look what he says in verse 7. Huge contrast. If you write in your Bible, you may want to put a circle around that word, but. Verse 4, if anyone has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I the more, and he gives his list. He gives his resume. In 7 he says, but whatever gain, here's the idea about the financial look at our spiritual life. Those of you who are accountants, God bless you, I'm one of you. I see you out there, both of you that I know. Gains and losses, profit and loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever profit that I got from following religion for religion's sake, 
It's a loss. Paul's fleshly gains for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Notice what he says here. His past decision was to count everything as loss. Verse 7. And his present decision. Notice the change in tenses there. I counted as loss. Verse 7. I count. It is an ongoing decision. And Paul would say it's an ongoing daily decision. I count ongoing every day. And he would say it's an ongoing, all-encompassing daily decision. I count everything. Not just my religious life, verses 5 through 6, but everything. Everything. As loss. For what? The surpassing worth, look at the end of verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything. Everything? Everything. You mean family? Family. Job? Job. Class load? Class load. Future? Future. Everything. Because when you, you, you count all of that as a loss, it puts it priorities right. And then those things that are very important, family, honoring God in your work, honoring God in your school, honoring God and trusting God for your future, all of that is secondary and it falls into place. You will be a better father when you know Jesus. You will be a better worker when you know Jesus. You will be a better student when you follow Jesus wholeheartedly and you will trust the Lord without any reservation if you know Jesus. It's priceless. It's a surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And then he come up, kind of summarizes that whole section. For His sake, that's Jesus, I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish Rubbish, refuse, dregs, garbage, worthless trash. It's, it's the food gone bad. You've done those science experiments, haven't you? You open the door, you pull out the Tupperware that is no good anymore because there are things there that weren't there two months ago, right? You can't do anything with it, not even with the Tupperware. Can't sterilize it. You just just you don't even want to open it because the whole house would need to be fumigated. You just take it and you put it in the trash. I think the the, the translation that gets it the best rubbish kind of hides it. Worthless trash brings out that idea of worthlessness, filth. But. You know, we'll go back to the authorized version because that's the version Paul read, right? That's what they say. Dung. Excrement. It's worthless. Here's what he says. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as worthless stuff. Muck. It is what I plunged last week. It's that gross. That's what he's saying. It's gross. All my... Zeal for the law. All my 
righteousness under the law. All my ritual eighth day circumcision. All my pedigree. I was born of the nation of Israel in the tribe of Benjamin. It's gross. It's gross. It's gross. Let me put it in. All my wrongly motivated Bible study, all my wrongly motivated church attendance, all my wrongly motivated joining and doing this, that, and the other, all of it, it's just gross. It's just gross. So, what should we invest in? I mean, right? Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You and I don't need, first and foremost, to invest in anything. We need to trust in the One who's given us everything. Verse 9. I consider them rubbish, into verse 8, in order that I may gain... There's your accounting term again. Gain Christ and be found in Him that I might have a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship with Jesus does not come by our work. I could go all over the Scriptures, at least the New Testament, in Romans, um, in Ephesians, I could go all over it. But I just want to stay in Philippians. So turn back with me to verse 1. Verse, chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who... I didn't begin the good work. God began the good work. Does that negate me from my responsibility? No. 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a seriousness with which we work it out. But the foundation there, key word, for. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He gives you the desire and He gives you the discipline to bring joy to Him. And so Paul says, I want to know Jesus. I want to gain Jesus. The beauty of the Gospel, the good news, that there is a God who exists and He richly rewards those who pursue Him, and that man in his sin has turned away from God and has rebelled against Him, and that Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, who as God came down, Philippians 2 tells us, in the form of a man, lived a perfect life, a life we should have lived, and died a death, the death that we should have died, and now rises again, and those who trust in Him, it says in Romans 4, He died for your transgressions and He rose for your justification. We have been justified by God's grace. Christ did the work. We didn't do the work. 
And Paul just reiterates that in 9. I love this. There's a lot of debate all over the country about righteousness. Is it my righteousness or is it Christ's righteousness? And I firmly believe with my pastor back at home that there are some men who get bored in their quiet times. Let's just read it for what it says. And be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is not my righteousness. Never has been my righteousness. Never will be my righteousness. If it was left up to me, as you heard last week, it's not very righteous, is it? It's pretty gross. It's not my righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness. just want to read to you one verse. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of Him, you who are in Christ Jesus, and here's how He describes Christ Jesus, who became to us, became to us, wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Your entire Christian walk is summarized in one verse. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, that depends on faith. You and I didn't do anything, and I was preparing for this, ran across one verse that will forever solidify it in my mind. That justification happened because there was a substitution that took place. Amen? Colossians 2.14 says, By canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. I had a record of debt a mile long, and legally I was going to be sent to hell. Paul says in Colossians 2.14, this record of debt, he set aside. How? How did he do it? Nailing it to the cross. Jesus took my sin, your sin, And He nailed it to the cross. Colossians 2.14. When did that happen? This He set aside. He set aside the debt that we have accumulated. The debt of sin at the cross. It did not happen inside you. And it didn't happen with any of your help. It happened 2,000 years ago outside of you and for you by God through Jesus on the cross. And can it be? Great hymn. Says it like this. No condemnation, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. 1 Corinthians 2 says I have the mind of Christ. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach that eternal throne and claim through Christ the crown, my own. So not only in that justification was there a substitution, Christ's righteous life for my sin, but there was an imputation, Christ's righteous life. To impute means to attribute on behalf of, of another. And so He took my sin, 
and he gave me Christ's life. And I get that, as he said twice in that verse, through faith in Christ. That depends on faith. It's not a righteousness that consists of your faith. I would even argue Ephesians 2.8 says your faith is a gift. It is a righteousness that was credited to me. There's the accounting term. Because of Christ's death on the cross, I get His righteousness. It doesn't stop there. So if 9 talks about our justification, Paul says, you know what? I do have a responsibility, which he will flesh out in 12 through 21. We will get to that next week, but look at it here. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. And so if 9 is, is, is our justification, 10 is our sanctification, that we know Jesus and we do have a responsibility, as Paul said in Ephesians or Philippians 2, to work it out, to know Him and the power of His resurrection. That means the power of the Gospel it doesn't just save me from my sin, it sustains me as I walk with Him. The Gospel, as I've said before, is not the ABCs. Whew, got my fire insurance. I can live like whatever because... Grace is a coming. No, you've got a misunderstanding of grace. It is the A to Z. It is what sustains you every day. It is why last week, what happened, I can turn quickly and confess to the people I need to confess to and be at peace. Oh, the grace of God cleanses me. And the power of His resurrection is not just a one-time event. It is that one-time event and it's an ongoing process. And look at the last verse. One day that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That glorification which is to come. But you, I know, you're astute. You've been reading Daniel. And you came to Daniel 12 too and you said there's a resurrection for everybody. And Daniel's the comment on this. One goes to eternal death, the other to eternal life. That is what Paul is talking about here, that he's going to do whatever it takes. I don't know what another version says, but mine says, by any means possible. Whatever it takes. I want to know Jesus, whatever it takes. The practical things, you get to know Him right here. Whatever it takes. However many hours a day it takes. I don't want to say read so many of this and that because that work moves towards the what we're fighting against. Well, check it off. Whatever it takes. By any means possible. And in the context there, it's that suffering. Many of you have heard this. God... Dr. John Piper says this, is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. And He is most glorified in us when we are satisfied in Him in times of trial, in times of triumph. That when we succeed in something, it's not, uh, hey, check. <laughs> it's praise God. It's that when we're going through struggles and pain, He'll sustain me. When we're sick and it, we don't know why, God's still good. As a, one of our elders has said, He's not done with me yet.
don't leave here today convinced that your good works will get you to heaven. It's not safe. For me to tell you this again, it's safe for you. It's not safe. It has everything to do with Jesus and God working through Him to justify us as our substitution, our imputation, and then we work by His grace to know Him. It's the most fascinating thing you can do is to know Jesus. You can be anywhere and know Jesus. You can be in a gymnasium. You can be in a meadow and talk to Jesus. You can be in your car on the way to work and cry out to Jesus. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Gentlemen, if you're here and you're a father, we have an awesome responsibility and a privilege to inspire this vision of Christ's righteousness, of the gospel of grace, to model it in our own lives, not perfectly, but, but sincerely, to, to enable others to see it in the text, to draw it out and to talk about Jesus. When you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk, to talk about God and to encourage others in their walk. You're doing a good job. I'm so proud of you, Luke, that you're praying. Wow. And then to defend this concept of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, and not ever balk at that. To defend it and to suffer for it. Gentlemen, that's our responsibility as fathers. That's a good Father's Day message. Know Jesus, no matter what, by any means possible. Does that mean, Judd, let's just get, does that mean you get to tell your wife you're going on a six month personal retreat to get to know Jesus? No. Let's be reasonable. Because I know by any means possible, let's... Again, Jesus and Paul often made statements for effect. By any means possible means when you put Jesus first, all those other things fall into place. Whatever it takes. So, I'll end with this. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. That men, women, that's our life. To gain what he cannot lose. That's eternal life with Jesus. So, dine well means we value. First and foremost, it's your belief. If you don't believe this, you won't invest in it. Everybody invests in what they believe in. Right? You invest in certain stocks or whatever because you believe in them. You invest your time, talents, and treasures in whatever it is because you believe something about that, whether that belief is right or wrong. So let us value. I can't do anything on my own. God's working in me. 
He's got an awesome responsibility for me. He's justified me by His grace. And I'm going to invest in it. For me, that means I'm going to spend time in His Word. I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to spend time around others who know Him and love Him and learn from them. And then I'm going to go spend time at coffee shops and talk to people who don't know Him, don't love Him. Dine well means we value and invest in our relationship with Christ no matter what the cost. Father, every time I say that now, I, I, I just have to thank you that I can call you Father because of what your Son did for me and what your Son did for those in this room that know Him. We can call you Father. Paul says we can call you Abba Father. We can call you Daddy. Thank you for Paul, who in humility showed us that he had a worthless life apart from you. And that we forget about Paul because he pointed to your son. Help us, enable us, Get to know Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen.